Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is brought to our church by Micah Bosworth, who pastors Ridgepoint Baptist Church in Wenatchee, Washington. We hope that this message will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Go ahead and, uh, and turn to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to start tonight, is Luke chapter 24, and uh, read a little bit about uh, an account where Jesus went through all of Scripture with a couple of people, and then uh, that's where we're really going to springboard for tonight's topic of uh, what is the Bible, most essentially, what is it? And that might seem like, that might seem like a, uh, a trivial question, like what is the Bible? Well, we know it's God's Word, we know it's inspired by Him, and uh, there are so many answers we could give to that. Luke 24 is where we'll be, Luke 24, yep. Chapter 24. But I really want to, I really want to unpack uh, Scripture's context as a whole and, uh, and have this for the basis really on how we approach God's Word personally. Uh, this will also give a little bit of insight into, uh, for those of you who may not know, how the study process takes place for a pastor when he preaches. Uh, some of what we'll talk about today is things that a pastor or a preacher of any kind has to take into consideration as they study, and uh, so it'll give us a little bit of insight on that. But I do, I truly believe that what we're going to look at tonight uh, will help each and every one of us with uh, with just our own approach to the Bible. And um, sometimes we, I, I feel like we approach it in the wrong way because we don't truly understand what it is as a whole. And so uh, I hope that I'll be able to prove tonight through Scripture, not just by hearsay or by my own words, but by the Word of God, uh, that what I'm saying tonight truly is uh, the truth and, uh, and, and why we look at Scripture this way. And so Luke chapter 24, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13, and uh, we'll read all the way to verse 35 just to give us the story. But Luke 24 and verse 13, it says this, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. So they didn't recognize him that he was Jesus. It says, And he, Jesus, said unto them, what manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? So they're talking about what's just taking place, and what's just taken place is that Jesus has died, okay? That's what they're talking about. Uh, and they say in uh, verse 18, and one of, this, one of them whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? Uh, almost like, where have you been, bud? <laughs> That's what this guy uh, says to Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, what things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Uh, if, you, if you're not catching it, this is the day Jesus rose from the dead, okay? So uh, they, they knew of his death, 
They knew they had believed on him to be the Messiah, and they're sad about these things. They're talking with the very man who they're talking about was just killed, but not realizing it yet. And they end up, uh, they, they end up saying, and, and now it's the third day since all of this has taken place. And then it tells us uh, in verse 22, Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it, even so as the woman had said, but him they saw not. Uh, and they're like, and now we don't know where his body is. But these women who went there said that he was alive. And Jesus said unto them, verse 25, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then this is where I want us to really catch the thought for tonight. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then as it continues to verse 35, uh, they listen to Jesus on this walk to Emmaus. Uh, they listen to him say from Moses, that's the law and the, uh, the first five books of the uh, Old Testament and all the prophets going through scripture, every single bit that points to him. And by the time they end up eating with him, asking him to stay, and then he prays. After he prays, they're like, what? That was Jesus. And then they run all the way back and tell the disciples of it. Uh, but uh, I really want us to focus in on that verse 27, uh, where it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's go ahead and uh, just start with a word of prayer before we dive too much into the subject for tonight, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for another time that we have to be in your word and, uh, Lord, to be able to learn from it. I pray, God, that as we unpack truly the context of your, in, your word in its entirety, uh, that it would change how we see individual stories, Lord, even change the way that we see us within the story that you're writing. And God, we pray that you would help uh, everything to make sense, and uh, Lord, for us to just be able to follow along with it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want to start by really to get us into what we're going to talk about tonight. I want to give an illustration uh, in this way. Uh, it, it was said that there was a man, that, and I read this in a book. I don't remember the book at all, but I remember this story that, uh, and Carlos, could you turn me down a little bit? I, I feel like I'm ringing up here. Um, there's a man that's sitting at a bus stop, okay? This man's sitting at a bus stop, and a young man runs up to him and says this phrase. The name of a common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. That's what he says to the man at the bus stop, okay? Now, the man knows what the sentence literally conveys. He knows what that sentence means, that the scientific name of a wild duck is Histrionicus. But what he doesn't know is what the young man's statement and actions surrounding why he said this means, right? It just seems so random. Uh, why did the young man come up and say this? What's the context of it? And the only way to know truly why he said what he said to this man is to understand the entire story behind it. Uh, so uh, perhaps the young man was mentally ill, and that's the story. That would explain why this random statement was said, right? But that would give us context to it. Uh, Perhaps yesterday, someone approached this young man and asked him what the scientific name of a wild duck was. 
And the young man went to the library, looked it up, and then today mistook this man as being the man who asked him that question yesterday. Maybe that could be the context that explains why he said it to this man. Uh, Perhaps the young man is a secret agent. And uh, this is the code that's supposed to be said to validate who his contact is. And he's seeing if the man at the bus stop is his contact. Uh, Each and every one of those stories, whichever one it would be, would help us to understand the one instant incident, right? That, uh, that this random statement, uh, the, the common name for a wild duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. Uh, just hearing that is like, what are you talking about? But when we see the whole story, whatever the context might be, it, it helps us to understand. The point is this, we can't know unless we know the full story. And so it is, I believe, with the Bible in this way, We can see individual accounts, we can see individual passages in Scripture and know what they literally mean. When we look at the story of David and Goliath, we know what that literally means. David killed Goliath, right? That's the story. I mean, there's more nuance to it than just that, but we understand what it literally means. But to fully understand each story and passage, uh, we need to see it in light of the full story that it is a part of, all of Scripture. And we need to understand the full story of the Bible. And uh, so I've already given away a little bit of where we're going with that illustration. But, uh, but I, I hope you'll bear with me as we get there and unpack what the Bible is most essentially. What is the Bible most essentially? Uh, and it'll seem a little bit academic, maybe a little bit like a college or high school class that we're going through and teaching some things. But, uh, but I believe that what we're going to uncover tonight can, uh, if we allow it to, can revolutionize how we interpret Scripture how we see each individual story in the Bible and ultimately how we see ourselves as a part of the story that God has created and is continuing to write today. Uh, and, and so let's start with, first I wanna start with what the Bible is not most essentially. Uh, now, what we're going to see is the things that we're gonna unpack here and it's even on the handout, what the Bible is not. Uh, some of these things, the Bible does do these things. But that's not what the Bible in its entirety is about. And that's really what each and every one of these statements is saying. Uh, So number one, it is, uh, and I see the numbers kind of got messed up on there, but uh, it is not essentially a book uh, of instruction on moral behavior. Okay, It, it is not essentially, number one there, a book of instruction on moral behavior. Now let me ask you this. Does the Bible contain instructions on how to behave morally? Yeah right? It it does have instructions for how to do that. But is that most essentially what the entire Bible is about? It's not. Um, So it's not essentially a book of instruction on moral behavior. Number two, it's not essentially a manual for self-improvement, for self-improvement. It it is not just some self-help manual. It's not just some book that gives us steps on uh, how to better ourselves, right? That's, that's not the essence of the Bible. It's not just a manual for self-improvement. Um, so the first one is, it's not essentially a book of instruction on moral behavior, um, and it's not essentially uh, a book uh, that's, uh, or a manual for self-improvement. That would be the first two there. Uh, the next one, it, it's not essentially a book of judgment wrath, and punishment. Um, you know, a lot of people, they think that's what the Bible is all about, especially those who have never read the Bible. They, they believe that scripture is just about God's wrath. Now, let me ask you this. 
does the Bible contain revelation about God's wrath and his anger? Sure it does. Yeah, we see, we see that unpacked. But uh, that's not what it is most essentially about. And, and what we're going to see as we go through this is that although it unpacks his anger and his wrath and his justice and his holiness and all of that, uh, we're going to see that it also unpacks his love and his forgiveness and his mercy. And, and to kind of get us thinking forward a little bit, let, let me ask, does God's wrath con- conflict with his love? Does his anger and his justice and having to pour out his wrath on sin and judge sin conflict with the fact that he is fully good and able to love and forgive anyone who comes to him? Is there a conflict there? The answer is yes and no, and I hope we'll see that, okay? Uh, there's, There's a tension there, but there's not a conflict, okay? There's a tension there, but not a conflict. Now, uh, so it's not essentially a book about judgment, wrath, or punishment. Number four, it's not essentially a book of rules. Now, the Bible does certainly contain some rules and some things that we should abide by, but that is not what it's all about. Uh, It is not essentially a book of inspiring, heroic stories, although it has those within it. That's not all that the Bible is about, Uh, Some think that it's just a book of legendary stories and myths to uh, find inspiration from and to be more like those people. That's what some people think the Bible is, but that's not really essentially what the Bible is. It is also, number six, not essentially about you and what you should do. Uh, The Bible isn't about us, okay? We're going to see that as we unpack it. Uh, Now, are there things in the Bible about what we should do? Again, yes, but it's not the main purpose, okay? Uh, it, it's, it's not merely a book to show us about right living. It's also a book to show us our wrong living. Uh, and and it, it, there's, there's a, uh, we're going to see that kind of unfold a little bit. Now, like I said, some of this, it, it's gonna seem, at least this first part especially, like, why are we asking all these questions? Uh, but I hope you'll see that some people approach the Bible these ways, and we need to see it in the context of it, in, it, in its entirety. Uh, so the next one would be this. It is not essentially answers to personal or social problems, okay? It's not essentially answers to those problems. Now, the Bible does have answers for marriage and for love and, and such things. It, it does have answers for those problems, but the Bible is not just some encyclopedia that we can topically search, okay? And, and there's an entire section of the Bible that talks about just that. Uh, now, we do find practical applications for those problems. And, and again, we're, going, we're working toward that to see that. But essentially, the Bible is not just a book that we come to to fix all of our social problems and our personal problems. And then the last one I have there is, it is not essentially answers to all of my questions. It is not essentially and only answers to all of my questions. The Bible has uh, all the answers to the important questions, okay? It has the answers to all the questions God wants us to have answers to. That is, it does have those answers, but don't think that the Bible has answers for every question. And what I mean by that is when you come to Scripture, you're not going to find whether Adam and Eve have belly buttons, okay? You know, like, you can't just say, well, the Bible has answers for all questions. In essence, I love the sentiment. It does. It has answers for all of life's problems. It does have those things, but it's not essentially just a book that we say, man, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? We're going to look in the scripture and we're going to find out. Okay, there are some things in scripture we don't know. 
It doesn't give us all the answers. We don't know. Uh, now, we can speculate things like who wrote the book of Esther, who wrote the book of Hebrews, and things like that. We can speculate it based off of what we see in other portions of the Bible, but it, a lot of things, it doesn't just lay it out and tell us what that very thing is. But the Bible does have answers for everything God wants us to know, okay? But it's not essentially a book that answers all of our questions. Uh, now, the Bible, and we've seen this already, the Bible is definitely profitable in many of those ways. It, it, it is profitable in all those ways, but only if we understand what we're opening and, and what we're reading. It's vital that we understand what Scripture is most essentially. But first and foremost, before it is a book that helps me live a certain way, or before it is a book that helps me uh, do, uh, follow certain rules, and before it is a book uh, that does any of those things, what is the Bible most essentially? And this is where I really want to focus on, and that's what the Bible is. And your blank there is this, a story, a story. So all those things that we said the Bible is not most essentially, it, it's profitable in many of those ways, but it's profitable in all those ways because the Bible is a story, it is a narrative. We're going to look at that tonight. Uh, the, it, it is God, the Bible is God making sense of what he is doing, uh, who he is, what he's doing, who I am, how I fit into the story, and where it's all going. That's, that's the story of the Bible. And uh, if you don't understand the story, then you're not really going to understand who you are, how you fit in the story, and where it's going, and where you're going. Uh, which means that if you don't know what your story is or what your part is in the story, then you need to make up your own story. And, and that's really what the world is searching for. The, the, the world is searching for a story. Like, where am I from? Where's it all going? What's my purpose? They're looking for their story. And when we see Scripture as it is, a story, a narrative, uh, we find ourselves uh, having answers to where we fit in all of this. And uh, like I said, the world is searching for story. Who I am, why, why am I, and where is this going? The, the postmodern mindset is that there are no answers to that. <laughs> they say you came from nothing, you are nothing, you'll end up being nothing. Like that's pretty much what, I mean, you came from dirt, or we, we, did, we are nothing in that way, but they say you were an accident, just big bang, poof, and evolution take place, and you're just this, this thing that came from nothing, and, that, and you really don't have any purpose but to make yourself happy, and that's really no purpose at all, and you end up going to uh, die and just disappear because there's no afterlife. Uh, really, that's that. where's the hope in that? Where, no wonder people are searching for who am I and where am I and, and where's it going? No wonder they're searching for that because that, that mindset has no... Uh, that, that mindset has no hope. And that's why uh, so many people, when they have that mindset, they can't make sense of all the nuances of our story like sickness and death and loss and trials, they can't make sense of that because they don't, they don't see where it's all going. They don't see the full story that God is unfolding. But when we understand that from the foundations of the world, God created a story that we are a part of, when we understand that, then the circumstances that we face are not just some random bad luck. We understand that they're a part of a huge, intricate story that God has, uh, that has written, uh, and, and it's a part of a huge, intricate story of God's ultimate redemption. And, and that's what I really want us to see tonight, is that is what the Bible is about. It's a story. Number one, it is a story about a Savior. That's that blank there. It's a story about a Savior. 
You might even put in there Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. Uh, Some of the verses that are on there, I just want to look at them and prove really from Scripture how Jesus showed us this and and some of the apostles showed us this. Uh, But in John 1.45, when Philip uh, brought Andrew to Jesus and said, come and see, what he said was this. He says, we found him whom Moses and the prophets did write. So he understood the Old Testament that we have, all of Scripture has been pointing to this guy, to the Savior, to the Messiah, to Jesus. We understand that. John 5, Jesus says this, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me, is what he said. All of the Scriptures, you are thinking you're going to find uh, eternal life and following the law when really all of the law was supposed to point you to me is what he's saying. And later in that chapter in verse 46, uh, he says, if ye had believed Moses, other, other, in other words, if you had believed what Moses wrote, then you would believe me because he wrote of me. Now, uh, how many of you have read Genesis through Deuteronomy uh, at least once before? You've read through those books of the Bible. Do you remember seeing Jesus's name anywhere in those five books? So then how can Jesus say that Moses wrote about him? Okay, how can he say that? Well, because everything that Moses wrote about points to him. And we're going to see that, okay? But Jesus said, if you, would have, oh, oh, if you would have understood and believed what Moses wrote, you would believe in me because he wrote about me. And then Luke 24, what we just read, Jesus showed from Moses and the prophets. That means all the Old Testament scriptures that they had, he showed them how all of it pointed to him. And the fact that he was going to die on the cross. He was supposed to suffer all these things. Why? Because the scriptures told us that he would, is what Jesus says there in Luke 24. In Acts 10, 43, uh, it said this way. uh, I believe it's uh, Paul, or I mean Peter speaking when he says, to him give all the prophets testimony, okay? So he says all of the prophets have testified or shown a picture of Jesus, That's what he's preaching there. So what that means is if you open Haggai or you open Amos or you open Jonah, uh, you're not just reading an account of when you open the book of Jonah of some guy getting swallowed by a fish. That's not all we're reading. Uh, You're reading a prophet who in some way or many ways is pointing to Jesus and showing the salvation that only comes through God's grace. That's what we're reading when we read the book of Jonah. Uh, for, for years, uh, when I was growing up, I was taught that the, the whale was God's punishment to Jonah. Uh, but when we look at it in the, in the context of all of Scripture, uh, if we read it in that way, that it was his punishment, then uh, what it would come, the application then would be this. If, if you don't obey, then you're going to be swallowed by a big fish or bad things are going to happen to you, okay? When you run for God, from God, you're busted, okay? That's the application if we just take it like that, that it was his punishment. But the whale was not God's punishment. It was God's grace for Jonah. Jonah was on a path of self-destruction. He was defying God. He got on a ship and everything went bad. And he, when he's on that ship, uh, he wasn't saying, throw me overboard because God, God needs to save me and take me to Tarshish. He was suicidal. He was saying, kill me, okay? I, I'm, I don't want to go. Kill me. And the whale swallowing him was God's grace saying, no, 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 I'm saving you. I'm going to bring salvation to you. God rescued Jonah from himself. That's, that's what he, uh, that he means in Acts 10 when he says, all the prophets 
uh, show testimony to Jesus is, is when you open those books, it's, it's giving some kind of picture or pointing to the grace of God in our Savior. Acts 17, it tells us that Paul reasoned with some people there out of the scriptures, okay? Uh, do you think when he did that, he opened the book of Romans and showed them the Romans road? No, he hadn't written the book of Romans yet. Okay, when he did that, <laughs> he uh, in Acts 17, he, he didn't open the book of Romans and show what we a lot of times show in the scriptures to point people to their need for a savior. Uh, he would have had to go to the Old Testament, to the law, to the Psalms, to the prophets to show them. And, and yet out of those scriptures, he was able to prove to people, here's why Jesus is the Messiah. Here's why he's the savior of the world. Uh, in Acts 26, uh, he, he said, he, it says, he continued to witness unto this day, saying none other than the prophets and Moses said should come. So it says that Paul, he was sitting there giving witness uh, to the fact that all of Moses and the prophets pointed to Jesus being the one who would come. In Acts 28, it says, when they appointed a day to whom Paul then expounded them, persuading them about Jesus from the law and the prophets. Do you, see what, do you see what I'm trying to get at? That even the Old Testament, it's not just a random stories and, and events and, and passages and prophecies and all of that. It's not just some randomness. It's part of a larger story. What's the story? It's the story of a savior, of Jesus. It is a story about a savior. It's a story about Jesus. And then number two, it is a cohesive story. What I mean by that is, is it is a story that makes sense from beginning to end, if you, if you have it all in context. It is a cohesive story, is the blank there in number two. Uh, and and these, these next uh, few blanks, they're not original with me, but I feel like they just make perfect sense to follow through, follow through with really what the Bible uh, gives us as a story. And the first blank would be this. So it's a cohesive story. The first blank under that, the bullet point, would be this. Creation and the fall. If you want to write that, that's, that's really the first act of the story. Creation, God created us, and then there was a fall. And the, the questions that are uh, answered in this portion of the story is, why am I here? How did I get here? Where did I come from? Where did it all go wrong? Our world seems to be in so much divisiveness and, and, and all of this. Where did it all go wrong? We find it in the creation and the fall. That's where the story uh, is found in, in back when uh, the fall took place in the garden and, and sin entered into the world by one man, Adam, and, then, uh, and, and all of that took place. That tells us where we came from. God created us. Uh, it, it tells us where it all went wrong. Sin entered into the world. And we, we believed that we, knew, we could know more than God, and, and we gave in to the temptation that Satan put in front of us, and because of that, sin entered into the world. And that's why... Everything seems wrong because it is. There's sin in the world, okay? Creation and the fall, uh, that's known as, uh, again, not my specific words of how to say this, but I love how it said, the grand tragedy. In this grand story of the Bible, that's the grand tragedy. We were created in God's image, but because of sin, that image was marred, okay? It was marred. And what takes place because of that event, the next thing is this, uh, God's holiness... Okay, this is the blank there in the second one. God's holiness and God's love. Okay, and I want to unpack that for us in this, the grand tension. So because 
because of the fact that sin entered into the world and God is holy and he is perfect and he is just and he has to pour out his wrath upon sin and he has to judge sin, attention uh, is seemingly create a conflict is seemingly created. Really, it's just a tension between can God truly be fully holy, fully just, fully uh, wrathful, and 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 ven- vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, vengeful upon sin. Can He fully be that in the way that He should be because of His holiness, but also be fully loving and fully forgiving? And, and fully merciful and gracious to us. Can he be both? And the answer is yes. Uh, but but uh, the questions that come because of the creation and the fall is, can it all be made right? I mean, can it? Because God has to judge us for our sin. Is there a conflict between God's wrath and his love? And the answer is there's no conflict. There's a tension. But Jesus relieved all of that tension in number three, redemption through Jesus. That's what the story all leads to, okay? So we have this tension. Can God be just and holy and and judge us for our sin, but at the same time, forgive us for our sin? That seems to not make sense, right? He's gonna judge us for our sin, but he's also gonna forgive us our sin. It seems to not make sense, but how does it all make sense? Redemption through Jesus that blank uh, is there in the, in the parentheses that says this, the grand rescue, the grand rescue. Uh, how is God going to make this right? And what is the resolution to the grand tension? What, what happens is this, the tension that was there between God's holiness and God's love, okay, so God's wrath and God's mercy, God's, God's justice and his forgiveness, the tension that was there, is, is all settled in one man named Jesus Christ because he did pour his wrath out on our sin. But where did that take place? On Jesus, on the cross. He poured out his wrath and his sin, and that's why God, Jesus had to say, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he poured out all of his wrath and his forgiveness. But in that same event of pouring his wrath and his justice all out on his own son. Because of that event, we also forever can find forgiveness and love and healing and rescue in, uh, in a relationship with the Lord because of what Jesus did. And so the story is this, God created us, sin entered in and the fall of man took place and there was this tension created between God's justice and his love, but God uh, ultimately brought together uh, all of that uh, through the redemption in Jesus Christ and rescued us. And, and, and it goes into, and this is the part that we haven't seen yet, but where we know it's going is restoration. That last blank is this, restoration. Or you could say it this way, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The grand fulfillment. The questions that are answered in this is where is it all going? Where is it all going? See, when we see the full story in that way, and I want to make it practical to us in just a moment, okay, uh, on how we approach Scripture, but when we see the full story for what it is, 
that he created us, but sin entered into the world and it created this tension, but God uh, fully uh, resolved that tension on Jesus Christ and is moving it forward for our ultimate uh, restoration and the, and the millennial reign and all of that that's going to take place that hasn't happened yet, but that's where it's going. If we understand that story, uh, I have this quote there. If you don't understand the story, then you don't really know who you are and how you fit into that story and where it's all going. Okay, if you don't, if you don't understand that story, then it everything that happens to us just seems random. But but when we understand that from the beginning God created a story that we are a part of, then what we go through is not random. Uh, the the things we go through are a part of an intricate story of God's ultimate redemption. I think there's a misspelling there. It says ultimata redemption. Okay, His ultimate redemption. Uh, they're a part of an intricate story of God's ultimate redemption through Jesus Christ and ultimately his restoration of all things new. That's where it's going. And when we know that story, there's hope. The things we go through is not random. We fit into that story. We, we find forgiveness and love and, forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. And we know one day he's gonna restore us and restore the earth. There's hope when we know the full story. And so how does that, knowing, knowing the full context of Scripture, how does that help us in our personal everyday walk with Him and when we interpret Scripture, when we read all of those events of the Old Testament, how does that help us? That's where I want to get practical tonight in talking about four approaches to Scripture. Three of them are valid approaches. The first one that we're going to look at, the Bible is redemptive history, is the primary approach to Scripture. And we'll unpack that practically in just a moment. But that is the primary approach to Scripture. We see all of it. We see Jesus in all of it, okay, is what that first approach is. Uh, the Bible is systematic theology and the Bible is practical philosophy are both valid responses and approaches to Scripture, but they are not the first primary approach to scripture. And then I, I wanted it to be extra clear. Number four there, the Bible is emotional mystery is always a wrong approach to scripture. Okay. And I hope I'll be able to prove that it is not just some mystical thing that we just get to make up the applications for. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. Anytime that that happens, we need to steer clear of that. Okay. Yeah, especially if you hear a preacher coming at it from that approach. That is just steer clear of it, okay? That is not the right approach, and we'll see that in just a moment. But the Bible is redemptive history. That is what Scripture is firstly. And I've already exhausted that, okay? I don't want to... We could ultimately, and, and maybe next week, we'll, we'll kind of see it specifically. Uh, uh, where is Jesus in all the Bible? Um, it, it's one thing to say the whole Bible is about Jesus, Okay, the Old Testament uh, points to him. The, the uh, Gospels tell us about him and everything else flows out of him. And that sounds nice. And we're like, yeah, that's true. But sometimes it's hard to see that. And so next week, I want to actually kind of unpack that a little bit more as we go through it. But today, I want us to know, first of all, the Bible is a story. It is redemptive history. And I use the word history, not just redemptive story or redemptive narrative, because history means it's true. Okay, it is a story, but it's not a mythical story. It is a, a historical narrative of redemption through Jesus Christ. Okay, that is, first of all, every time we approach Scripture, we need to remember this is, in the greater context of things, a story about Jesus. Okay, uh, number two, the Bible is 
Systematic theology. The Bible word for this would be this, doctrine. Truth. What we believe, okay? Why we believe it. A statement of faith is what many times we would call it, okay? That's what this approach would be. Uh, The Bible word, uh, as I said for this, would be doctrine. Jude, he challenged that we would earnestly contend for the faith once delivered, okay? The Berean Christians were known for searching the scriptures and seeing if what they believed was true from scripture. Doctrine, it's our body of beliefs. It is a framework, okay? It is the structure of what the faith, of what Christianity, what God, what Jesus is. That's why if you look at our statement of faith, it, it really, any church, it says who God is, and then says who God is, and then there's like 75,000 verses behind it, right? Okay, I'm just exaggerating. But there's a bunch of references in parentheses normally behind that. Why? Because uh, that approach to Scripture is valid. We know who God is because of all of these pieces of Scripture that we've put together to understand who God is, that He is a Trinity, that He exists in the Trinity, that He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, we, we know that how from all of these random portions of Scripture that we piece together, That's what it means when it says it's systematic theology. We're kind of pulling all of these pieces together instead of taking it all as one story to know who God is, to know who Jesus is, to know uh, why, uh, you know, what we believe about the gift of tongues and things like that. You know, when we go through that, we pull a bunch of verses out to show us because in the context of scripture, there's all these verses that do talk to that specific subject. Does that make sense? Okay, so it is an approach to scripture, but that is not our first approach to scripture. Okay, we first approach it, it is a story of God's redemptive narrative. However, in that story, there are a lot of things that teach us about who God is, who Jesus is, and all these other things. That's why this is another valid approach to Scripture. Number three, the Bible is practical philosophy. What that means is the Bible is a philosophy of how life should be practiced. That is a valid, valid approach to scripture because it does tell us how life should be practiced. It's just not the primary, the first approach to scripture. And I'm going to give us examples in just a moment. So as I said, this is going to be a little bit teachy, okay, a little academic. I hope you put your thinking caps on tonight, okay, drunk, drank a little extra coffee before you came to church, uh, but, but that's where we're going uh, in just a moment. But uh, the Bible is practical philosophy, but here's, here's the thing. When this is our only approach to scripture. It's a valid approach to scripture, but when it's our only approach to scripture, then we're viewing scripture as an encyclopedia and we separate it from the redemptive narrative and from the theological framework of good doctrine. And then when we only come at it from practical philosophy, how to, how to live life, then what we end up with is only a self-help manual. That's why this is not the only uh, way that we approach scripture. Okay. Uh, If we start with a practical philosophy approach, then we see the word of God as a book just as much as those who believe in karma. Really, uh, with with only this approach, we'll see the Bible as a do this and good things will happen. And and do uh, bad and then bad happens. Okay, that's that's really what uh, we would see, just like karma, uh, if we only approach scripture with this approach. But that's not how God works. Okay, that's not how God works. And so if this is the only approach you use, we come up with a behavior-based book. Okay? And we know because of the redemptive narrative history of Jesus Christ's redemp- our redemption through Jesus, we know that's not how God works, that we do good and we find favor with him and we find blessing and salvation in him. We know that's not how salvation works because of the overall context. But this is also a valid way to look at scripture. 
And I hope we'll see that in, in a way as long as it's in the context of the redemptive narrative, okay? Now, the last one, this is always wrong. So if you want to tune me out for this one, that's okay because you should never look at scripture this way. But I want us to know some people do this and we need to see it for the wrong way of looking at scripture that it is. This approach is uh, emotional mystery. This approach uh, is most figurative and symbolic and makes pretty much everything in scripture an allegory or uh, or an example of something, okay? It says that all the stories of the Bible have implied meanings, and, and you have to decipher what all the stories mean. You see why this is wrong? Because it, it makes, uh, it leaves the passages meaning up to the reader or the preacher to decide. And it's wrong because we don't make the Bible symbolic or mystical unless the Bible is clearly using symbolism, okay? So for an example, when it says, uh, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, okay? Do we take that literal to mean that if I take this Bible and, and poke Leo with it, it's gonna kill him because it's literally sharp as a sword? No, we don't take that literally, okay? Because it's very obvious that it's a symbolism, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we only see symbolism when it's very clear that it's symbolism. Uh, now, here's a funny illustration for... Someone who comes at the Bible with a mystical approach. Just, I, I approach it, uh, this is how I make it make sense. Uh, and, and I didn't come up with this, but I thought it was funny. Uh, someone who just says, I'll just look at the Bible and see how to find out, uh, you know, my own interpretation of this. Well, then I'm going to look up in the Bible and see the Bible's top 10 ways to get a wife. Okay? If you do that, here are some approaches you might take. Have God create a wife for you while you sleep. Genesis 2. Find a man with seven daughters and work hard to impress him. Exodus 2. Marry a captive woman. Deuteronomy 21. When you see someone you like, go home and tell your parents, go get her for me. Like Samson in Judges 14. Here's a good one. Judges 21. Go to a party and hide. When the women come out to dance, grab one and carry her off to be your wife. Love that. Right? Here's one, Ruth 4. Purchase a piece of property and get a woman as a part of the deal. Okay, 1 Samuel 18. Cut up 200 of your future father-in-law's enemies and get his daughter for a wife with David and Saul. Here's one, 1 Kings 11 with Solomon. Don't be so picky. Make up for quality with quantity. Do you see how this just makes no sense to approach the Bible as mystical or I get to imply the meaning to whatever it's saying? Okay, become an emperor of a huge nation and hold a beauty contest like an Esther. Uh, here's a good one. Hosea, marry a prostitute. I'm just saying, okay, have your father send one of his employees to pick out a wife for you from your father's relatives in the old country, just like Abraham did with Isaac. Okay, it just doesn't make sense that we would approach scripture that way. Uh, and I, I want us to see uh, practically, I'm going to give a, a pretty lengthy quote, but I love how this is worded. And then I want us to make it practical tonight before we finish. But uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I read this too. I, I, we finished it with Felicity. It's a book for kids, but honestly, I would say whatever age you are, if you read the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, you will see how all of Scripture points to Jesus. And this is how she says it in the very first part of the book. I want you to listen to this. She says, Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. 
But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. That's how the book starts. And I love how it just points to the fact that the Bible certainly does have some rules and some stories, but all of those things ultimately point to Jesus Christ. It is ultimately a story about redemption through Jesus. So why is it important that we approach Scripture? First, through the lens of the full story, the gospel, and then secondarily as these other approaches. Well, Just for practical sense, let's look at a few stories that we all know. The story of David and Goliath, okay? The emotional mystery approach would uh, approach this portion of scripture as this. And I've heard a message like this before. David came and he picked up five stones before he went to, uh, to fight Goliath. And those five stones that he picked up were love and courage and, and faith in God. Now, does the Bible tell us that at all? No. That's why we don't approach Scripture that way, okay, by imposing what we want in the story, okay? That's emotional mystery, approaching it that way, the always wrong approach, okay? That is how someone who's approaching it incorrectly would approach it. The practical philosophy approach, so seeing it as a way that we should live. If, If it's about us, then we read the story something like this, go be like David and kill your giants and trust God to help you which is a good takeaway. It's not wrong. It's just inferior to the primary uh, interpretation of that scripture. Is it, should we have confidence in God to go against any trials and temptations and giants that comes our way? Yeah, that's a great application for it, but it's truly inferior to the, the good approach of redemptive history to say this, it's all about Jesus. And when we look at it that way, then we see the story as this. We are held hostage by the Philistines. We're held hostage by sin. And Jesus is our David who goes out alone in our place to rescue us and all like us to rescue us from the giants that persecute us, okay? The whole nation was threatened and it all hung on this one battle that was won by the substitute, David, representative who did what the others could not do. Do you see how that's a perfect representation pointing to the ultimate redemptive history of, of, the, of scripture? That we are held hostage by our sin. We could do nothing. 
We can't fight these giants of sin that come up against us. We have no hope of doing it. And a substitute came up in our place, Jesus, to take upon the penalty. You see how, that, how beautiful of a picture of the gospel that is when we approach it that way? Let's look at another one. The story of Abraham and Isaac. Story of Abraham and Isaac. A practical philosophy approach would say it's about you, and if that is the approach, then we would say you're Abraham, and God will give you something that we, he will ask you to surrender to him. Now, does God ask us to surrender things to him? Yes, he does. Is there a sub-story that we can learn from Abraham's faith? Yeah, of course. But if we look at it in the narrative of a redemptive history and see that it's about God, then the story is that God would come to earth and make himself a lamb. And that one day his son would walk up another hill with another piece of wood on his back and become a greater sacrifice for all of humanity. And ultimately, God would provide himself a lamb. That's what the ultimate picture of that is. One that I preached recently here, the story of the prodigal son. Okay, If we approach that, uh, and, and one of the reasons I preached it the way I did was because of approaching it this way, but the story of the prodigal son, if we approach it with just emotional mystery, we, we want to say what we want about it, then you might have a message like this that I've heard where they say, man, that older son did what the father said. That older son obeyed. That older son stayed in the field and worked. Let's hear it for the older son. If you know the story, that is not what Jesus is trying to say about the older son. No, 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 no. But, but if you just approach it with, I want to say what I want to say and talk about sticking to the stuff and talk about staying faithful, then you might approach the older son in that way. But if, if you're looking at it in the context, you're not going to find it that way. Now, practical philosophy, if you're looking at it at just ways to uh, apply it to yourself and how you do better, you're going to see it this way. Don't run away from God or bad things might happen to you. Now, is that, again, an application we could look at to say if we run far from our Father, that we might end up in situations we shouldn't be in? Sure, that's an application. But the full story in the redemptive history of Scripture as a whole shows us that the story of the prodigal son is a story of God's love and forgiveness despite the times that we may stray and run away from him and despite the times that we're too self-righteous like the older son. That's what the real story is, is God's love to bring back those who think they're too good for him and those who are full on in sin. That's what the true interpretation of. Does that make sense tonight? That this will change how when we look at scripture, we see it is not just a self-help book, although it will help us. It is not just some about us and how we should live life, although it will teach us those things. It is most essentially a story of how God created us and sin marred his likeness. And this tension was created, but ultimately he redeemed us because of his son, Jesus Christ. And because of, excuse me, because of that redemption, ultimately one day he will restore it all, us included. And we will reign with him again. And we see where we came from, where we fit into the story, and where it's all going one day when we truly understand Scripture as a whole. Let's, uh, let's just close in a word of prayer. And uh, what's it? The Jesus Storybook Bible. Yeah, by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's a kid's book. It has very pretty pictures to keep their attention, okay? But I loved it. I, I learned, I think, more than I taught Felicity 
by reading it. But it, it'll definitely show you how the whole Bible whispers the name of Jesus Christ from the, Moses, the prophets, all that. Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll have just a short time of prayer time together. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.